0: We'll take your copy of God's word. We're we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I guess it would help if I had my outline in front of me. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter. This is a quintessential text on the subject of grace. I don't know of any other passage frankly that says it or speaks to it most plainly as these 10 verses here given in this Uh, in this letter that Paul uh, penned very early in his ministry. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 1, reading through verse 10. This is the word of the living God. It's written for you. Let's hear them as they come from the mind of the God of heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the living and true God. Many of you have seen, of course, uh, at times, various advertisements on the television, various magazine advertisements, wherever a product uh, perhaps is being promoted in front of you, you have seen one of the techniques or one of the ways in which they seek to convince you to buy their products. What do they do? Well, they give you a picture of before before you use this paint, before you use this finish, before you use this renovation company or contractor, this is what things look like and then but look look what it could look like after the before picture, the after picture. We've seen these things. I remember uh, when I was pressure washing a deck while I was in seminary. The deck was hideous. It was black. You didn't realize just how black it was until you began to pressure wash it. And there, side by side, on one side is this black horrific-looking deck. And on the other side, it was like brand new. It was like someone just built it at that very moment. Well, each of us has this kind of picture. Every one of us in this room has a before picture. That is to say, a picture of what you looked like before Christ and the grace of God came to you. Paul highlights that before picture here in, in not such glowing terms, not so flattering of terms, and terms that are somewhat awful and ugly to consider, and, but, but reality nonetheless, the before picture, what were we like, what were you like before the grace of God came to you? But there's also the other side of that, the after picture. What, what do you look like now? And who are you now? What were you before and what are you now? Paul seeks to highlight this, as it were, this before and after picture uh, to the church at Ephesus, really to the many churches in the region of Ephesus, this letter being penned as it's been known to be, a circular letter, a letter that moved from church to church in that region surrounding Ephesus, but he seeks to set forth before the people the marvelous work of grace that took the before picture, which was ugly and awful and miserable in every way, shape and form, and how it was transformed into this glorious picture, rooted not in your works, not in theirs, not in their accomplishments or that which they might offer or say or do, but rooted really singularly. In that which Jesus Christ did. Now, I wonder this evening, as we think about this subject of grace, this is not the only time of the year, of course, that we should consider the doctrines of grace or the doctrine of grace, sola gratia. That very battle cry of one of the solas or uh, slogans of the Protestant Reformation. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, the subject of grace as articulated by Paul here in this chapter should be something that drives the train of your life from day to day. Knowing that not only when it comes to the work of salvation and the dragging of our sinful condition out of that mire and muck that we all once lived, that everything that we do, all of that we put our hands to, everything that happens to us in our lives, it's all an act of the grace of God. The fact that you're here this evening, that you're breathing oxygen in this room that you cannot see, the fact that your your heart is beating, the fact that you have a home to go to, uh, God willing, uh, uh, shortly, the fact that you have many blessings and benefits of this life, none of that was your own doing. All of it, every single thing, was an act of unmerited favor poured out upon sinners. Now, if that's true, and of course it is true, it is certainly true about that singular act of unmerited favor in which you, the dead sinner, were made alive because of what Christ did. How much time do you spend thinking and thanking the God of heaven, your Father, who has brought you into His family, has called you His own, has poured out numerous blessings upon you? When is the last time you thanked Him for the grace that He gives to you? We pray for His grace, and we should, But how often do we thank Him for the grace that He gives day after day, night after night, never ceasing, never ending, steady stream of continual grace flowing from the throne of God because of that which His Son accomplished. Let me ask a different question. When you think about your life, children, adults, when you think about your life prior to Christ, what was it like? You might think, well, I, you know, I was the all-American good boy and the all-American good girl. I, I played by the rules. I did what I was told. I, I didn't get into trouble. I was yet generally a well-adjusted person. I didn't do drugs and I didn't, get drunk, and I didn't run with the wrong people, and I didn't do the wrong things, and I was generally a good person. Now, maybe that's all true on a horizontal level. Maybe it's different than that. Maybe it's much like my past and my background, in which a lot of that was untrue. And recognizing and seeing the ugliness of our own sinful condition and recognizing the great need that I have for an after picture. Because you see, friends, the before picture will land you right in hell. The before picture, regardless of what it looks like, before Christ, before the grace of God, will land you squarely in hell. Because you can do nothing about your condition. I can do nothing about mine. What I must have, what you must have, is the unfettered grace of God in your life. And who better to write this passage? This isn't written by some super, superhero guy that grew up in a Christian home and played by the rules and did everything according to the... the this was a Murderer. A man who himself said he was a blasphemer, an insolent opponent of the gospel. A man who loathed the way, as it were, as it's put in the book of Acts. Who loathed Christians, anyone who would identify themselves with Christ. This man hated them. He breathed with anger and fury against them. He was there at Stephen's martyrdom as he held the coats of the people that were seeking to destroy him. This is Saul, now Paul, writing about the grace of God. Who would better know than therefore what that is? Who is in a better position in all of Scripture? Of course, there's many other candidates, but who really is in a better position to pen the very words that he gives here in this chapter that he might press upon God's people, you and me, this evening of the magnificent, the amazing grace of God himself. Some scholars believe that the book of Ephesians, as penned by Paul, is perhaps the clearest declaration of Christian doctrine and theology. Maybe it rivals the book of Romans. But notice, if that's true, and it's mostly true, I suspect, if true, notice how much inky spills here to highlight the grace of God. So this evening, with the help of the Spirit of God, I want to show you God's amazing grace. Now, I'm going to tell you now, right up front, it's easy, and it will be easy, to take this for granted. It will be easy to say and look and say, well, I know that. Well, well, I, 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 I believe that. And, 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 and okay, what's, yeah, something else, thank you. I, I got the grace part, we're good. You can't live without God's grace. I want to show you the amazing grace of God in this passage and what your response to it must be. Because it does. It invokes a response, doesn't it? Shouldn't it? God's amazing grace and what your response to it should be. Three points. Yes, there are three points. I know you're used to two points for me. Well, this passage kind of screams for three. First, what we were. This is verses 1 to 3. They're not pleasant words. But we we have to evaluate. We have to see the before picture. If we're really going to grasp the amazing grace of God, we we have to know something about what we were, what we looked like in that before picture. And then, of course... In verses 4 through 9, we're going to see what God did. Now, I'll tell you now, in this second point, I'm not going to deal with every nuance and syllable of the verses. I'm going to focus on sola gratia. I'm going to focus on the grace of God. What we were, what God did. And finally, in verse 10, what we are now. What we were... The before picture, what God did, how does that picture going to change? And what does that picture look like today in the life of the Christian? Let's consider first what we, what we were. Paul here does not, he's not lacking in words and description for what the Christian looked like before God's grace came to them. He's very plain, uses simple language. Not complicated, really. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, of course, we're we're talking about a people that he's been writing to since, of course, chapter 1. He's writing to the Ephesian church. He's writing to the various churches around that region. He's writing to the visible church. He's writing to the people of God, the redeemed of the Lord. He's speaking in the past tense. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice the past tense use of the terms. This is what you were. You, you Christians at Ephesus, you Christians at Providence, this is what you were. Like it or not. Whether you want to believe it or not. This is what your before picture looks like. It's a description Of our spiritual death. We all, all of us, at one time in our lives, were strangers and aliens to the promise, the covenant promise of hope. We were dead in our sin, as Paul makes plain here. You might ask, well, what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he? tells us that we are, we are dead in our sins. We're, we're dead in these trespasses. This is the state of which we were in that before picture. Well, the term here translated dead conveys the idea of one being destitute of a life that recognizes and is devoted to God. One commentator puts it this way, and he says that this death does not mean cessation of being, clearly, of course, I know that seems so obvious, right? It can't mean that. He's writing to people who are very much alive physically, but they were at one time dead. It's not cessation of being, but a condition of separation and alienation from God. No hope in the world. No peace of conscience. No hope whatsoever. The only thing that was in front of these that were dead in their trespasses and sins was an eternity, a tragic end, an eternity apart from the comfortable presence of the Lord. They are aliens and strangers. They are God-haters. They are rebellious. They are all of the things that are highlighted here in these three verses of which they're not pretty. Put a different way, it's the bad news of the gospel. In order to understand and recognize the good news which is what gospel means we must know why it's good what makes it good well i'll tell you what makes it good you every one of you before christ you were dead with no hope in the world whatsoever you weren't partly breathing at the bottom of the sea you weren't floundering about in the middle of the atlantic ocean waiting for someone to throw a life preserver that you might reach out and grab it that's rome that's what they teach And it's what the reformers wrestled and fought against when they said, no, no, salvation is not by any of that. It is by grace alone in the work of Christ alone, period. As we know, and as Paul elsewhere says, it it is through one man's sin that sin entered the world. How is it that we came into this dead state that we find ourselves in this before picture? Well, it came through one man's sin. That man, Adam, our federal head, that representative of all of mankind, the perfect representative, who failed in the place of paradise. Through one man's sin, Sin entered into the world, therefore, Paul says, all have sinned. All are dead in their trespasses and sins. No one is immune, no one can escape, no one can hide the simple truth that as soon as you've been conceived in your mother's womb, you are a sinner and deserving the wrath of God. So Paul goes on, as if that's not bad enough. He piles on from this summary statement of our spiritual death. He gives to us aspects, two of them, two aspects of this spiritual death. First, we have a natural, or had a natural bent disposition towards sin. That was our way. It is what we did and wanted to do, as Paul says it, in which you once walked. A very common word for the apostle, describing a way of life. The normal course of things, previous to Christ, is what? That we would walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. A natural bent towards sin. Just a a cursory reading of the Bible tells us this. Again, not pleasant to read, but true nonetheless. Think of Jeremiah 17, as it describes the very heart of the unregenerate, the very heart of man. What is that description? Well, it's one that is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Can you? Can I? When we look out in the world today and we, we see the events of our, of our world, our society, the events that are happening, the horrific events that happened in Maine this week, the things that are going on in the Middle East, we see these things, and sometimes we wonder, if you're like me, we wonder, what is it, why is it, why are people behaving this way? because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are following the course of this world. They are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Their hearts are dead and hardened like dead bones of Ezekiel's day. They are desperately wicked hearts that reside in them. Second, not only are they desperately wicked, they love it. They love what they do. They relish in it. Jesus himself says it in John chapter 3. They have a love of the darkness. They don't want the light. They don't want to be raised from the dead. They don't want to be bothered. They want to be left in their sin. They're happy there. That's what they want. They're wicked. They love the darkness, not the light. They give approval to ungodliness. Proverbs chapter 2, in this natural bent, as I've already mentioned, is something that we inherit by birth. Not a soul on earth can hide from this description. All of us, at one time, before the grace of God, were dead in our sin, rebellious to the core, desperately wicked. Yes, you were. You may not have exercised the, the depths of your depravity. God restrains you. You loved the darkness. You had no interest in the light. You approved an ungodly behavior. You are all of these things because of, you, because of the fact that you were simply born. You inherited it from your father, Adam. But not only do we have this natural bent towards sin, we have an inability to choose, then, therefore, that which is good. In other words, we we can't craft, you can't craft the after picture. And why is that, you might ask? Well, it's because you're dead. And dead people don't choose anything. I have yet to see at a funeral, and I've done a few of them, The one lying in the coffin, lying in the casket, in front of me, in the service, say amen in the service, get up and raise his hands, sing. I've seen nothing but a lifeless body, dead, unable to do anything, unable to choose, unable To do what is necessary that he might live. Now the Apostle Paul gets into this in great lengths in another passage in Romans chapter 3. It's another one of those passages we read and we think, okay, that's everybody else and I don't want to talk about this. But this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Really beginning at the end of verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. This is known as a universal negative. There's no exception. You're not it. No one is righteous. None. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. How'd you like to be described as worthless? You're just worthless. Why? Because you're dead in your sin. You're worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And here it is there is no fear of God before their eyes. What's going on in the world? What was going on in your world in the before picture? You did not fear the Lord. You had no fear of Him. You were dead in your sin. Because you are dead in your sin, there are various characteristics that followed you around, plagued you, dogged you all of your days as you won outside of the grace of God first. And Paul highlights these for us when he says that we follow the world system. All that is antithetical to the to the God of the Bible, all of it, you followed, I followed. Gladly, joyfully, with glee, because I was dead in my sin. I followed the world's systems, all of our desires, our motives, our practices, our ethics, our priorities, our actions, everything, everything was designed to follow that which is antithetical to the God of the Bible the world system that system that is controlled by the prince of the power of the air put a different way third, second in this characteristics of our spiritual death you followed Satan what yes you did I know you don't think you did I know that you didn't uh, consciously consider that but that's what you're doing he is your father and you are following His bidding, His will. Why? Because you're dead in your sin. Because your heart is turned away and, uh, from the living and true God. Because it's wicked. Because it loves darkness. Because it approves an ungodliness. Because you are by nature a sinner. We followed the world system. We followed Satan. We had no real freedom. You had none. You were in bondage to unrighteousness. You walked this way. As Paul highlights it for us, will you walked this way, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Paul here is capturing the whole essence of our existence. Carrying out all of these things. Walking in these things. Antithetical to the very God who made you. And notice what he says at the very end of verse 3. All of it is true. And because it's true, you were and are by nature. By nature. Just because you're here, you are by nature the very object of God's wrath. a different way you deserve because of your sinful condition because of the deadness of your own heart because of the ugliness of your own mind and soul because of all of this you deserve with absolute certainty you deserve god to destroy you that's what you're owed that's what you have earned just because you're here now the story ended there. Uh, yeah, it would, uh, it would be pretty bad news. It'd be awful. It'd be the worst kind of news there is because you and I would have no hope in the world, none whatsoever. What, what would we say? How would we argue our case before the just judge of heaven and earth on that great day? What would we say to him? Well, you know, I did some things nicely. Oh, good. I, 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 nice did you keep my law perfectly? Well, nobody's perfect. That's the problem. You have no fear of me. You are dead in your sin. And you are then banished from the comfortable presence of a holy God. But you see, the story doesn't end there, does it? And I know you know this. And again, you have to resist the temptation right now to say, well, I know this. Because if that's what you're thinking this evening, then you have not yet embraced the amazing nature of the grace of God. What you are owed has not been given to you. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. He doesn't highlight anything about what we do or have done or will do. He focuses his entire attention now right where it needs to be. He focuses it on God's grace rooted in the work of his son. Look how he puts it in verse 4. Probably the greatest adversative in the entire Bible. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, doom. But God. But God being rich in mercy. How rich is His mercy? Can you measure it? Can you describe it with a number? But God, who intervenes in the life of dead sinners. In the construction of this section, verses 4 through 9, the subject of this entire section is in fact God. He is the emphasis, the triune God. He is the emphasis of what is being done to the life and in the heart of the dead sinner who deserves nothing but his wrath. God intervenes in the life of dead sinners. Notice in this section in verses 4 through 9, there's not a singular hint, not one shred of human ingenuity. None. None. Paul doesn't even come close to commenting on the nature of our will or ability, but he does spend enough ink to highlight the nature and will of the ability of the God man, Christ himself. Notice how many times in this section, in verses 4 through 9, in which he roots the grace, this rich mercy of God. He roots it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There at the end of verse 5, when we were dead in our sins, made us to get alive together with Christ, raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's a sampling. Put a different way, All that God does in this grand adversative to turn that bad picture, the before picture, into the glorious picture that he has now is working in you and me, he goes out of his way, Paul goes out of his way to root it squarely and singularly in the work of his son, the the son of God. God intervenes, not due to my ingenuity, not due to yours, but due to the work of the one who alone is righteous the one who in Romans chapter 3 is the opposite of everything Paul said in those verses the opposite of everything that was given to us in the first three verses of chapter 2 the righteous one the holy one the God man Christ himself you see it can be no other way God cannot simply intervene in the life of dead and sinners because he chooses to Apart from the satisfaction that is required due to our sin. That would make him the God of Islam, capricious and arbitrary. But he's not. He, from the beginning of time, even before the foundation of the world was laid, he determined to rescue dead sinners through the raised, through the resurrected Lord, his own Son. To crucify him that his justice might be satisfied. That object of uh, his wrath might be turned aside to another who was was able, because of who he was, to withstand the very wrath of a holy God. None of this is arbitrary. This is all purposed and planned that he might intervene in the life of dead sinners. But the fact that he decided to do so to begin with is an act of the grace the riches of His mercy. You see, my friends, God did not have to do any of this. He did not have to rescue a single soul. For if He has to rescue anyone, it is no longer grace. But He did. He determined to save you. Not because you are so beautiful. Some of you may be. Not because you're so good not because you, are, uh, you, you preach and you serve as an officer in the church or because you give to the poor or you invite people to your house or pick something. None of those are the reason. It was because of his own good sovereign pleasure rooted in the fact that he was pleased with his own son that he might rescue you from your dead, miserable condition. God intervenes. God takes the initiative. God does the work. This is all of grace. It is such because God was under no obligation whatsoever. God was under no obligation to save Adam and Eve, to give to them that proto-evangelion, that first gospel in Genesis 3. He didn't have to say that to them. He could have just wiped them out and it would have been just, and it would have been right for him to do so. But what does he do? In an act of great grace, he slays an animal, covers them, though they tried to cover themselves, and rescues them from their pitiful condition. Promises to them that through their seed will come a one who Paul describes as he who has been made alive, that we might be then alive. Not dead, but alive. God's purpose for this intervention in the life of dead sinners is to demonstrate, to demonstrate His extraordinary grace for all eternity. People question the grace of God. Why? Why? All you have to do is show him you. you all you got to do is say, hey, wait a minute. Look, look I, I can't explain everything God is doing in the world. I, I don't understand half the things he does. I don't understand 90% of the things he does. he does. He's not pleased to tell me all this stuff, but I do know this. At one time, I hated him. At one time, I was a rebel. At one time, I was a miserable creature of dust. At one time, I had no fear of him, and this is what he has done for me. Why? Because he wanted to, because of his great love for me because of what Jesus Christ has done you have every opportunity to show forth to the world the purpose of this intervention the life of dead sinners that you might it he might through you demonstrate his extraordinary grace for for not just today but for all of eternity one chapter previous Ephesians 1 and verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee, that is the Holy Spirit, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Repeated three times in the first chapter. God's grace is designed to show forth, as Paul puts it is, that He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us, in His Son, that we might then show forth to the world the immeasurable riches of His kindness to us. You are, as it were, a trophy of God's work. It's His and he shows the world I am gracious I am merciful I am full of kindness and compassion I save sinners if I've saved one sinner I'm a gracious God if I save ten sinners I'm a gracious God if I save a thousand sinners I'm a gracious God Friends, how many sinners has he saved how many sinners has he rescued from this miserable condition that they found themselves at one time can you count it can I millions billions All proof of his immeasurable kindness and grace done through the means in those verses that we've memorized since we were children. For by grace you have been saved. Not by your good looks or good works, not by the money you give to the church. Not by the thing you, you tossed into the, whatever that, exp, that saying was during the Reformation, you know, you put it in the thing and the soul springs from purgatory. None of that nonsense. Grace. All grace. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The instrument of your justification the instrument by which you lay hold of the grace of God is faith and that faith friends you, you didn't even come up with it on your own God had to give it to you God had to give you the sight that you might see the ugliness of your sin and turn away from it God had to open your eyes God had to birth you from above God had to do that why otherwise you'd still be dead in your sin you'd still be dead and apart from the hope of Christ You'd be gone, hopeless, ruined. God gave you a gift of faith that you might trust the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you may lay hold of Him only and hope for eternity, then therefore, that you might now not be dead, but alive in Christ. A breathing, living, breathing proof that the God of heaven is gracious. And so what are we now? Through this marvelous work of resurrection, regeneration, breathing life into the dead sinner who couldn't breathe life into it for himself, what does that, where does that leave us then? Where does that leave you this evening? What, what does Paul say you are now? Well, verse 10 tells us, doesn't it? For we, notice he includes himself. It's really amazing. We are his workmanship. As a master builder, craftsman, which I know nothing about, as you know, tools and me don't get along. But as a master builder, God has crafted you. He is putting you together. You are his new creation. You are not the dead, horrible blob of humanity that Paul describes in the first three verses any longer. You are very much alive. You are very much the objects of God's kindness and favor. And as such, you are His workmanship that have been created again. There Paul does. He appeals to the work of Christ created in Christ Jesus, that glorious work of creation in the soul of men, dead men, that we might walk not according to the world. But again, he comes back to that very same term there, the end of verse 10, that we might walk according to the things that God has prepared for His people that He's placed His grace upon, that we should walk in them. Previously, you walked according to the world. Previously, you did all that the world wanted you to do. But now, now, a live, breathing object of the grace of God, you walk according to that which he prepared for you to do we call them good works Paul calls them good works they are the fruit and evidences of a lively faith a faith that is not of your own a gift of God they're the fruit and evidences of one who has been changed by the grace of God an act of God to raise you from the place in which you walk terrible and miserable. You are now a new creation, once dead, now alive, to live in new obedience, once walked according to the sinful flesh, now you walk according to the purposes of God. Grace. What were you before Christ? If you're still confused as to what you looked like, read the first three verses again. Go back and read Romans 3. That's what you were. That's what you would have remained as had not God intervened according to His grace and His grace only. Now I've shown you the before and after picture of your life. I've sketched it for you in thumbnail. Every one of you are there. I'm there. How we were, how you were before Christ and what what we are, what you are now as a result of being rescued by God's grace. The question for you this evening who have been rescued is what are you going to do with it? What will you do? Well, Three things first if you do not know Christ the call to you tonight is to bow the knee to Jesus Christ to recognize that if you're apart from Christ you're still dead in your sin that you have no hope in the world whatsoever you are the object of God's wrath just by nature because you exist you might say that's not fair don't ask for God's fairness you may say you may not like that good you shouldn't but it's still true. But there's hope. You look to Christ. You, you cry out like that tax collector in the temple. You say, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is what you are. You must look to Him only. Not to yourself. All that's done is made things worse. No, no, you need to look to Christ you beg his pardon, you flee to the cross of Christ, he will not turn anyone away who does. Second, for those in the after picture, that is to say that you're, you're what's been described after verse 4. You're the ones who've received the very mercy and grace of God. Brothers and sisters, good works are part of the Christian life. Paul says it here about as plainly as one can say it. They don't merit pardon. Remember, it's all of grace. You're already in the family. By God's grace, live as one who is. And third, and really something that I think we all need to do more, at least I do, revel in the glory of God's grace. You see, it's not just about the cross only. It's about everything that happens to you in life. It's all an act of grace. Revel in the glory of God's grace to undeserving sinners. None of you, I, you, we don't deserve anything that we have that's good. We are miserable creatures of dust. We are not deserving of the least of his mercies. We have nothing to claim as our own. We cannot point to one thing that we can hold up against a holy God and say, look what I did for you. Because every time you do that, he goes, yeah, look what I did for you. And there he is, the Son of God, hanging on a cross. Put in a borrowed tomb, raised gloriously to his right hand and serving you evermore. Revel in the glory of God's grace. Think often about what you were before He raised you from the dead. Think often about what He gives to you that you do not deserve. You know what this will produce in you? Humility, thankfulness, meekness, all of those things that God looks for in His people. Think on, meditate on, reflect on all the ways in which God in His grace rescued you from your miserable, horrible estate. Amen. Our Father, we give You thanks for Your Word and we certainly are thankful that You did not leave us in the end of verse 3, but You, being rich in mercy because of your great love, even when we were dead, made us alive with our Savior. And so we thank you that you were mindful of us, that you did not give us what we deserve. You gave us your Son. You gave us hope. You gave us life, life from death. May you help us. May we walk humbly with you, May we walk with you, for you, all of our days, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.